0: I think we all have at least one uh, guilty pleasure food. I have many, but uh, my guilty pleasure is probably not what you think. It's fruit roll-ups. I love fruit roll-ups, and and the fact that we have children at the house means that we have fruit roll-ups in abundance. But I love fruit roll-ups. But the problem with fruit roll-ups is they're tiny. They're really, really small. Um, There just needs to be much more of them. They came up with this thing years ago called fruit by the foot, that's a lie. It's like an inch by a foot, so that just, it's the same amount, but just in a different form. And I found out a few years ago that one of my friends is in food development for Lowe's. And I thought, this is my big moment. And I said, I hear that you develop food for Lowe's. I said, yeah, I just developed this cold brew coffee and look at it. I said, I've got something for you. And he said, what? And this is the moment I've been waiting for all my life. I've been waiting to ask, you know, what, what can I do for you? So he said, What well, what's your idea? And I said, giant fruit roll-ups. And he's like, how big? I was like, like a tablecloth. <laughs> I said, I want to make a, make a sleeping bag out of it and eat my way out of it. I said, can you take that up for me? And he was like, yeah, it's not going to go over well, but I'll check it out. You know, and then I followed up with him a few years ago. This is a true story. And he was like, yeah, that's just not feasible to do. And I said, you need to make it happen. You're my only hope. Anyway, Bartimaeus also got to this place where he could ask someone that had power to do anything. He comes to Jesus and he says, son of David, have mercy on me. And he gets the response back from Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? This question that he's been waiting for all his life. He's been waiting for someone to say, someone that had the power to be able to answer this question. Now when we look at this text, there's two people in this text, Jesus and Bartimaeus, but then there's also the crowd that's kind of a third entity. And what happens is that Jesus is going from Jericho to Jerusalem. Now if you're sitting there thinking to yourself like, I thought they said in the Old Testament that Jericho couldn't be rebuilt and that the gates of its town would be rebuilt at the cost of the first son." Well, there's the ruins of Jericho where Joshua fought that battle, but then a mile away, there's the now modern city of Jericho. And if you can just kind of imagine a little bit Blowing Rock and Lenore, you know, you've got Jerusalem up here in the mountain, or that's why that's always the Psalms of Ascent. We're going up to Zion, and down here you have Jericho, which is one of the lowest towns around because it's actually below sea level because of the Dead Sea. And so it's, it's the winter home. It's, it's where people go in winter. Actually, Herod had his winter castle there. So they're down here, 18-mile journey up to Jerusalem, and they're all going up for the Passover. So Jesus has to come through the city gates to go to Jericho, and what hangs out by the city gates? People that are trying to make connections, and certainly beggars, and those that are trying to make financial connections by gain of getting a little handout. You have to come just get the idea that you can't just read this as just a story, oh that's a story, that's just another one of those stories of Jesus healing someone in the Bible. Stop just for a minute. Jesus healed. Countless people in scripture, but we don't have all of their stories. And actually, this is very important because Bartimaeus is the only person in the synoptic gospels who was healed who we know the name of. Now, Lazarus and John is not a synoptic gospel, but Lazarus gets raised from the dead, and John, he was one of Jesus' friends. But Bartimaeus is the only person that we know the name of who's healed. And so you have to stop and say, what's the point? There's got to be something greater. If, If Mark felt compelled to put this in here, what's the point? Now, Bartimaeus. Bar means son of, and so Timaeus. But notice he says Bartimaeus, and then the very next thing in, in the quotes it says, son of Timaeus. And Kevin DeYoung, who's a scholar and a theologian, says it's because that's a point of reference. That is meaning that Bartimaeus is still around. The, the reason you're going to give him two points of reference is to say he's still around. you know that guy, Bartimaeus? That's him. That's the one we're talking about, the son of Timaeus. Here he is right here. You can go talk to him if you want to. And so, when we get to the text, go go ahead and turn your Bible with me to verse 46. So, in verse 46, we look at the text and we see that going out of Jerusalem is going to necessitate going through the city gates. Beggars congregate there. And a crowd is going up from Jericho to Jerusalem. And if you think about it, it's, it's not just that Jesus is there. Jesus always demands and creates a crowd and people want to see what he's going to do want to see what he's going to say but also this is one of the three pilgrimages that every jewish person was required to do in their lifetime and that is the pilgrimage of passover so if you can just think about again using our lenore to blow and rock analogy whenever there's a football game there's more than just the normal normal traffic there's abnormally large amounts of traffic so you have this big crowd you have jesus there and, and you just keep this this you know, you could just see this mass of humanity going. And so it's not just one person and Bartimaeus is yelling out to him. Bartimaeus has got to yell out maybe over hundreds of people. And so verse 47, I want you to look at the fact in verse 47 that Bartimaeus is not willing to just address Jesus as where he's from. Notice that your text says, everyone had heard that Jesus of Nazareth was coming through. You know, when Bob's dead, we're going to be like Bob of Hickory. You know, that's what, that's what we're going to call him. We're going to name a bathroom after him, maybe dedicate a urinal or two to him. Um, that'll be more funny to you the more you get to know Bob. <laughs> but he's not willing to do that. In faith, he refers to him in a very messianic way. And he says, Jesus, son of David, Son of David, that is an extremely messianic, prophetic, I believe that you are the Messiah, statement of faith. And notice what he does. He says he doesn't say, heal me. He does not say, make me see again. He does not say, get me out of here. He says, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And so in verse 48, you get the crowd now comes into it. And the crowd is fickle. The crowd is always fickle. The fickle crowds. shh! This, this beggar, he, he's not the best of Jericho. You know, we don't, want, we don't want his interaction with Jericho to be, you know, Bartimaeus. You know, Bartimaeus. Hey, you know what? Jesus came through Jericho. Oh, who did he talk to? The mayor? The councilman? You know, our new county commissioner, Austin Allran? No, he talked to Bartimaeus. Oh, not Bartimaeus. And so you hear the shh. But not only that, but to call out, to call out son of David was a dangerous thing to do. To call out Son of David is a dangerous thing to do because the people that didn't like Jesus and that hated Jesus, they would have hated someone calling him this messianic term. So there's a fickle crowd. But Bartimaeus reasserts his faith by shouting even louder. So that's verse 49. you got to realize that Jesus is on his way to save the world. And I think about the incredible walks that you have had in your life. This is an 18 mile walk that Jesus is going to make from Jericho to Jerusalem. What are the incredible walks that you've had? You've had incredible walks. You know, maybe it was the the walk in the first day of class in that new school that you were in, right? You remember that walk, don't you? How about the walk when you were going up into the hospital to meet someone that was about to die? How about this, those of you that are married? How about this walk right here? How about this walk? Can you imagine someone, uh, you know, the, the bride walking down the aisle to meet the groom right there? And you know what? Uh, like the fourth cousin twice removed stands up over there and is like, Hey, Sheila, come over here and talk to me for a minute. You know, Jesus is on his way to go save the world. The most incredible walk that has ever happened in the world. And he stops to have an interaction with a blind beggar. That is compassion. That is Compassion. But notice now the crowd who was so fickle now that was going, shh, now says, hey, cheer up. This is just like the Dixie Chicks years ago. You know, they were the rage and everyone loved them. And they said one thing about President Bush and then they were the trash. And the crowd went, ran turned on them Well, this time the crowd went, ran turned the other direction. And so they cheer up, go. And the next verse, verse 50, don't miss that something significant happens here in verse 50. He has a cloak or a coat Now what do we already say about Jericho? One of the warmest places in all of Israel. You don't have a cloak or a coat as a beggar because you're trying to keep warm. Just like a musician will pop open their guitar case in front of them when they're playing, a beggar would spread out his cloak or his coat in front of them so that when people would throw coins, what is he? He's blind. It's not like he's like, throw it to me, I'll catch. You know, he's, They're throwing it down there, and so there he can grab them up. And so when he leaves it behind, again, another huge step of faith, this thing that I have been dependent on for my livelihood, I will now leave behind to go to Jesus. I'm not bringing my plan of what I want my life to look like to Jesus. I'm bringing my life to Jesus and whatever he wants He's going to do for me. And so then in verse 51, Jesus gives him this question, what do you want me to do for you? And it's it's so full of possibility. Now contrast this to Mark 9.22, because in Mark 9.22, the Father says, if you can do something, if you can. Bartimaeus doesn't go there. He's like, I know you can, but he says, will you? I want to see. Will you do it? I believe that you can. I've already called you the son of David. I've already left my cloak behind. I just want to know if you're willing to do it. And it's not a brash ask, but it's an assertive ask. And, and I think to myself, if you love the Christmas story movie like I do, and you want, you want, you know, what's his name? I forget his name. But anyway, you want him to get the, uh, the Red Ryder BB gun, and he gets all the way up to Santa Claus's lap, and he says, what do you want, little boy? And he's like, oh, and he freezes. Well, just with all boldness, Bartimaeus says, I want to see. I want to see. It doesn't freeze up. He, he names what he wants to a person that can actually do it, to a deity who can do it. And so in verse 52, Jesus responds to him and he says, Listen, faith has led you to me, and I am the healer, and now you are healed. Go now that you can see. Go whichever way that you choose. Notice in the text, and this is interesting, he says, Go your way. Your faith, is, your faith has healed you. And Bartimaeus could go any way, but instead, he follows Jesus. And where is Jesus going? To the cross. And this is, this is one of the best examples of Mark 8, 34, 36. If any man wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What would it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit or lose his soul in the process? And Bartimaeus, who now can see who can go anywhere he wants for the first time in his life... Jesus to follow Jesus.
1: So among the miracles of Jesus, this one seems to me to be relatively uh, unremarkable. What do I mean by that? I mean that this is, you know, this isn't as dramatic as dropping a paralytic down through the floor, or as dramatic as a man who goes like, my son has been an epileptic and had these seizures and he's demon possessed for you know, years and I need you to free him. So the, Jesus doesn't, doesn't do anything sort of uh, like he, he, sometimes he'll put mud on somebody's eyes or stick his fingers in somebody's ears. He just says, go, your faith has healed you. And so this is a relatively unremarkable miracle compared to all of the other miracles in the Gospels, except for its placement in the Gospel of Mark. So the reason this miracle has such power is because of the story that follows it and the story that precedes it. And the story that follows it, if you flip over to chapter 11, is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And so when this, when this man says to Jesus, I know you're the son of David, then we don't know everything that he meant by that, but we know that Mark means to set up the following scene, where this man is one of those who followed Jesus along with all these crowds and came down to the Mount of Olives and then into Jerusalem from there. And the whole crowd says, Hosanna. To in the highest, to the Son of David, right? So this guy sets us up for what follows, which is the first time that Jesus really allows people to hail him for who he is. Up until now, in the Gospels, whenever anybody would say anything close to Son of David, like when the demons would say, you're the Holy One of God, or when Peter said, you're the Messiah, Jesus would say, shh, don't tell anybody. To this guy, Jesus doesn't say any such thing, because this is a pivotal moment, and Jesus is now ready to be recognized for who he is, and it is Bartimaeus' recognition of Jesus that sets us up for the story that follows. The other reason this story is so significant is because of the story that precedes it, because Jesus asks the same question of James and John, what do you want me to do for you? So. Two, two times asked the same question, but a very different response. And the response of James and John is, we've seen you in your glory, and we were there on the Mount of Transfiguration, and we know that you're the Son of God, and you're the Messiah, and we get what's coming and the glory that's coming in Jesus. We don't ask much. We just want when you, we don't want to be at the center when you, when you sit in your glory. We just want to be on either side. So this is our request when they say Jesus uh, Jesus says what do you want? We want to be on either side of you in your glory. One of us on your left and one of us on your right. So contrast that to this man who thinks I deserve nothing at all and Jesus says, "What do you want?" He doesn't say I want glory or fame or power. Jesus, I just want to see so there are a couple elements. Pastor Paul is always very kind in leaving me uh, plenty of time uh, to talk. Let me just point out a couple of other elements in the story that really grab me. One is, do you realize that it would it'd be, it'd be interesting to have you turn to your neighbor and say, do you know the name of anybody on whom Jesus performed a miracle? Because there are only two in the Gospels. And the other one is Lazarus. is the book of John. So people named in miracles are very, very rare. This is only one of two. So why is this significant? Because apparently his father was important. Timaeus means honored or respected one. So he's the son of somebody famous. We don't know why or how or whatever, but he's named and his name lives in, in, uh, in our lives, in our hearts, in our Bibles because Jesus does something unique for him. Another part of the story that really grabs me is when this text says that he began shouting, that's actually an onomatopoeic word, and you know what that means, right? Onomatopoeia, all of you who are still in high school know it. The rest of us have forgotten it. An onomatopoeia is a word that sounds like the thing that it's describing. So there are a lot of animal sounds that are onomatopoeic, like meow, it's what a cat sounds like, right? Or chirp is kind of like what a bird sounds like. Or oink is supposed to imitate the, the, uh, the pig, right? So this is a word that in Greek is gradzo and it's supposed to imitate a raven's call and so this isn't just he shouted, this is that he shrieked like a raven and can you imagine a man in a crowd, the the, the the panhandlers that you run across, you're kind of okay if they're poor and they ask for something but you don't want them to be a nuisance and this is a man who is shrieking like a raven over and over again, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And you can see when a guy repeats that over and over again, while everybody's saying, shh, shut up, shut up. You're, you're ruining the moment here. And everybody else wants him to be quiet, except Jesus, who says, call him. It's just a wonderful moment. So I thought it was very appropriate in this wonderful story of mercy for us to talk about something you haven't heard about all week long, The coronavirus. Some of you are going like, man, I thought I could get away from it at church. I mean, I went to get my hair cut this week, and the first thing the hairstylist wants to talk about is the coronavirus. Everywhere you go, and maybe you thought church was going to be a place to get away from it. I think instead, this is a wonderful place to talk about mercy. So I titled my sermon today, Lord Have Mercy. As I thought about the coronavirus, and some of you, you prefer the sort of uh, different dialect, Lord lot of mercy, right? So, this is just something we say, a lot of mercy. So, that is actually do you realize, Lord have mercy is probably the most often spoken prayer in the Christian tradition. We owe that mostly to the Eastern Orthodox, but also to the Catholics in some liturgies. Uh, But it's also very common in Scripture to pray this prayer. Many people who come to Jesus pray for mercy. And in the Old Testament, this prayer for mercy is very common, particularly in the Psalms. So this is the perfect word for us to unpack a little bit what we're hearing and thinking and feeling about the coronavirus. So let me say a couple words about it uh, that are on the practical nature, and then I'm going to get to the connection with mercy. So I, I will tell you that for weeks I've been saying to people, I think it's way overhyped. I'm tired of hearing about it, you know, but then the more it comes around and, you know, up until two weeks ago, we said nobody in the U.S. has died from this disease. As of now, there are 20 people who have died from coronavirus in the United States. And so I still want to say two things that I think are the most common things that people keep repeating that we need to hear. And you need to know it's true in church as well. Number one, don't panic. Uh, I can't say a whole lot about the crazy stock market. Some of you live and die by that, maybe more than I do. But even if the market fails and we fall into recession, I blame the hype more than I blame the virus itself. So we've taken something that, you know, is nothing to be, I was going to say sneezed at, but that's not a very good pun. It's nothing to be sort of dismissed, and yet... You know, when we turn something like that with our 24-7 media coverage and every new death becomes a major news story, we tend to turn into panic mode. I actually heard yesterday, just in the last 24 hours, I've heard two stories, one of people stealing masks and gowns from hospitals, right? You're stealing them from the people that really need them just in case I might ever need them at my house. What kind of panic is that? And two is, somebody told me yesterday of watching TV and and at Costco, people were hoarding paper towels and toilet paper. Like, what does that have to do with the coronavirus? Anyway, I guess I can't ever get out after now, and so I'm going to need all these paper supplies. So, you know, your computer did not crash at Y2K. Can I just remind you of that? And there was a whole lot more hype about that 20 years ago than there has been about this. And the worst rarely ever happens. If the if the virus lands in our area, we will take appropriate measures when it comes. It's not time to panic yet. We're not canceling services. We're not canceling mission trips. Uh, I'm not going to stop shaking people's hands. You know, if you want to, it's fine with me. If you'd rather do the elbow bump, it's fine. But I think we're way too early to go like I'm not touching anybody. All right? So that's my personal opinion. My overall is don't panic. No reason to panic. Uh, Live your life for goodness sake. So we do understand at the same time that there are people who are at greater risk if they get the virus. And we do want to be sensitive to that. And if there are people who have newborns or elderly people, then we certainly respect their need to protect themselves, but most of us, even if we get it, are not really in danger of significant illness or death. Second, uh, that we keep hearing is use common sense. So even if it were to come to Catawba County, what do they say to do? Like wash your hands, sneeze into your elbow, or some people say don't even do that, but you know, use uh, your hand sanitizer. So just use common sense, and we say all of that as well. So now let me, having said that, I get that, let's go to the mercy connection. Because during the Lenten season, uh, we're learning how to pray. I'm learning how to pray again. And how do you pray with something like the the coronavirus? Uh, How does the theme of mercy integrate into our prayers? Well, I've been saying that prayer is basically in two categories. All prayer falls into thank you and please. So we apply the same lessons, the same categories of prayer to the coronavirus, to anything that hits us and to the theme of mercy. So first of all, you can pray thank you prayers as you think about the coronavirus. You can thank God for the mercies that you see every morning. I mean, you woke up this morning. You're okay. You're at church. Uh, you're healthy and strong, and the people that you know are. And we live in a, in a community, in a world with incredible medical knowledge and history and, and wonderful physicians and nurses and doctors and scientists who work on this. There's so much for which we can be thankful. The Bible uses the word mercies both with thanks and Please. So there are lots of scriptures all the way through that are thank you for God's mercy. Do you realize the very first use of the word mercy in the Bible is with Lot and his family when they were spared the judgment of Sodom, and it's because of the mercy of God that they were spared. Moses and David and Nehemiah all prayed prayers of thanks to God for His mercy. The Psalms have maybe even more prayers in thanks for God's mercy than they do requests for mercy. So you can just thank God for His mercy, and when you turn to the New Testament, one of the key descriptions of God is of His mercy. I love Ephesians 1. God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Peter begins his first letter, Praise to be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of the dead. So if mercy means that we're not getting what we deserve, which is God's justice and wrath, than the fact that we have salvation, the fact that we have grace, that we have hope, that if the worst happens and we leave this world, that we know we are going to be with the Lord, there's wonderful mercy for which we can be thankful every single day. So use these moments, use every indication of whatever's bad in the world, including this one, to say, God, thank you for your mercies. We all deserve death. And yet, in Christ, you have given us life and hope and strength and joy. The fact that we're created in God's image to love and be loved, that you have people around you, some of whom are in this room and some of whom are at your home and some of whom you work with and relatives, people, your friends, people who love you, people who need to be touched and whom you need to touch is an incredible mercy. The gift of touch is a mercy for which we can be thankful. And then we can turn our... uh, reflections on mercy and to please prayers. So as I said, the most common prayer in the Christian tradition is Lord have mercy. And certainly we need to pray for those who are hurting, those who have been affected most uh, physically as well as financially by the current crisis in the world. And you do realize, don't you, that Christian people are historically among the first to show up in the midst of a plague or A a disaster. So that's why I say you know unless we're told specifically stop traveling we're doing our mission trips we're going to places and those who are able and willing will may even go to places where there's some risk because we show up. You realize Martin Luther was uh, stayed there in Wittenberg when the plague hit just so that he could host people in his home even those who were sick. And when the Ebola virus hit Africa a couple of years ago, Samaritan's Purse were among the first people to show up and stay there and minister to people. We're not afraid of sickness or even death because we know Jesus. And yet we can move that into prayer as well as we pray for those who are needy and hurting and as we ask God for ways in which we can minister to them. I would even like to suggest that the virus itself is a mercy. The coronavirus is a mercy. It's what Sheldon Van Auken called in a famous book a number of decades ago, a severe mercy. But it is always a mercy when we come to the place where we know we need God. Because sometimes we drift along and we think, you know, our doctors, they can take care of everything. There's a, there's a vaccine for everything. We're protected. We're, we're good, like our health care system is second to none in the world, or whatever it is where we feel secure, our stock market is, you know, going through the roof or whatever, all is good. And the truth is that God once in a while allows these uh, regional, national, even global catastrophes to remind us that we really don't have anything in our own hands, that we need God. It is a mercy. It is a severe mercy, but it is a mercy to bring us to the place where we come to our knees and say, God, we need you to do something our science and our technology has not yet figured out how to do. So the key lesson for mercy in this scripture text, as we think about the story of James and John before this, is James and John are thinking, I deserve a lot. I've been there with Jesus. I know who he is. I want the place of honor. Compared to Bartimaeus, who is saying, like, I don't deserve anything. Don't ever pray, God, take this away because we deserve better. I'm not just talking about the virus. I'm talking about anything that we face. Never, ever pray, God, I deserve better than how you're treating me. We deserve more than what you're giving us. What we deserve is eternal punishment in hell. What God has given us is mercy. And so when we find these moments to remember That we are desperately needy people and we need God and we need one another and we are all at the end like Bartimaeus. We are impoverished and we are blind. We have nothing and we can't see anything except by the grace of God. Those are actually good moments for us to remember mercy. So we pray that God in his mercy will use this time to convict the world of sin and pride that God will help us to proclaim clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the hope of the world, no matter what it is that we face, and that we, his servants, will display the greatest patience and peace and grace because we know Christ and we are secure in him. Amen.